G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Well, here we are at last. Tim, this is it. This is it. The last part of our reading. For season five. Oh, I finally found someone. Mm, yes, that's right, Chris. One more episode to go next week, which will be our season wrap-up, and then we're going to take a break for a month before we come back with an all-new season of everyone's favourite podcast, and uh, and ours too. And we're going to be covering Genesis 6. Yes, yes, we are. And, you know, I, I really like those episodes that we do at the beginning and end of each season because it helps us to, you know, get the, the big picture of everything that we cover throughout the whole season. So next week is going to be great for sure. But right now, I want to hear about this guy named Noah. You know, if we were following the Septuagint, you'd have to wait until next season to be introduced to Noah. The way that they divide up the chapters and verses, they've got Noah in chapter 6, verse 1. Oh, I didn't know that. Does that mean that the verse numbers are different in Chapter 16 than the Septuagint? No, it just means that the first verse is much bigger because it's really two verses stuck together. Unlike that time they stuck the first two psalms together and threw off the numbering of the next 149 psalms. Oh, that's weird. It is kind of weird, but it makes sense in a way. Anyway, getting back to Genesis 6, what it what it does is it has the effect of bringing that genealogy from Genesis 5 together with the flood story. And that's important because when we get to the other end of the flood story later on, the genealogy just carries on as if the flood story wasn't even there. So the whole story of the flood is basically an interruption to a big genealogy? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I guess it is, isn't it? So uh, after we cover this little bit here, we're not going to come back to the genealogy until we begin Genesis 10. Yeah, that's right. We've got four seasons of the podcast to do before then. Oh, my goodness. That's like two years away. I'll even uh, have even less there. Uh, we'd better get on with it. Come on then. Tell us all about Noah. All right. Let's get started. Our story begins, like all good stories, with the birth of a beautiful baby boy. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, but he's a bit too beautiful. So much so that his dad begins to get a bit worried that something untoward might be going on. Lamech gets a bit suspicious that his wife might have been mingling in the wrong circles, so to speak. Wait, that's that's not in the Bible? No, nah, it's actually a story that comes to us toward the end of the book of First Enoch. It's in chapters 106 and 107. And since I reckon it's a pretty cool story, uh, I'm going to read it. It's written from the perspective of Enoch himself, and it comes under the subtitle, Fragment of the Book of Noah. So this is First uh, Enoch, chapter 106, from verse 1. And after some days, my son Methuselah took a wife for his son Lamech, and she became pregnant by him and bore a son. And his body was white as snow and red as the blooming of a rose, and the hair of his head and his long locks were white as wool, and his eyes beautiful. And when he opened his eyes, he lighted up the whole house like the sun, and the whole house was very bright. And thereupon he arose in the hands of the midwife, opened his mouth, and conversed with the Lord of Righteousness." His father Lamech was afraid of him and fled and came to his father Methuselah. And he said unto him, I have begotten a strange son, diverse from an unlike man and resembling the sons of the God of heaven. And his nature is different and he is not like us. And his eyes are as the rays of the sun and his countenance is glorious. And it seems to me that he's not sprung from me, but from the angels. And I fear that in his days, a wonder may be wrought on the earth. 
And now, my father, I am here to petition thee and to implore thee that thou mayest go to Enoch, our father, and learn from him the truth, for his dwelling place is amongst the angels. And when Methuselah heard the words of his son, he came to me to the ends of the earth, for he had heard that I was there. This is uh, to Enoch. And he cried aloud, and I heard his voice, and I came to him, and I said unto him, Behold, here am I, my son, wherefore hast thou come to me? And he answered and said, Because of a great cause of anxiety have I come to thee, and because of a disturbing vision have I approached. And now, my father, hear me. Unto Lamech, my son, there hath been born a son, the like of whom there is none. And his nature is not like man's nature, and the color of his body is whiter than snow and redder than the bloom of a rose, and the hair of his head is whiter than white wool. And his eyes are like the rays of the sun, and he opened his eyes, and thereupon lighted up the whole house. And he arose in the hands of the midwife, and opened his mouth, and blessed the Lord of heaven. And his father Lamech became afraid, and fled to me, and did not believe that he was sprung from him, but that he was in the likeness of the angels of heaven. And behold, I have come to thee, that thou mayest make known to me the truth. And I, Enoch, answered and said unto him, The Lord will do a new thing on the earth. And this I have already seen in a vision, and make known to thee that in the generation of my father Jared, some of the angels of heaven transgressed the word of the Lord. And behold, they commit sin and transgress the law, and have united themselves with women, and commit sin with them, and have married some of them, and have begot children by them. And they shall produce on the earth giants, not according to the spirit, but according to the flesh. And there shall be a great punishment on the earth, and the earth shall be cleansed from all impurity." Yea, there shall come a great destruction over the whole earth, and there shall be a deluge, and a great destruction for one year. And this son who has been born unto you shall be left on the earth, and his three children shall be saved with him. When all the mankind that are on the earth shall die, he and his sons shall be saved. And now make known to thy son Lamech, that he who has been born is in truth his son, and call his name Noah, for he shall be left to you, and he and his sons shall be saved from the destruction which shall come upon the earth on account of all the sin and all the unrighteousness which shall be consummated on the earth in his days. And after that there shall be still more unrighteousness than that which was first consummated on the earth, for I know the mysteries of the holy ones. For he the Lord has showed me and informed me, and I have read them in the heavenly tablets. And I saw written on them that generation upon generation shall transgress till a generation of righteousness arises, and transgression is destroyed, and sin passes away from the earth, and all manner of good comes upon it. And now, my son, go and make known to thy son Lamech that this son which has been born is in truth his son, and that this is no lie. And when Methuselah had heard the words of his father Enoch, for he had shown to him everything in secret, he returned and showed them to him and called the name of that son Noah, for he will comfort the earth after all the destruction. Okay, so that was the story of where Noah came from, according to First Enoch. But there's another story about the birth of Noah, which appears to be a bit of a development or elaboration on this story, and it comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the very first scrolls found at Qumran was a text known as the Genesis Apocryphon. At least that's what we call it today. But when it was first rediscovered, it was known as the Book of Lamech. Rather than being told from the point of view of Enoch, this text is written as though narrated by Lamech himself. Sadly, the text is very damaged and quite fragmentary, and although there have been hundreds of manuscripts and fragments found at Qumran, there is only one manuscript of this text. And that makes it quite possible that the manuscript we have is in fact the original. So I'm going to do my best to read what I can of the translation of this badly damaged manuscript. 
it's kind of cool that we have this really there's only one manuscript of this in the whole world as far as anyone knows and we can read a translation of it more than 2000 years later yeah it's super cool all right so this is the translation of 1q genesis apocryphon the book of lemek the first part's missing and sort of pick it up somewhere near the beginning then I considered whether the pregnancy was due to the watchers and holy ones or should be ascribed to the Nephilim, and I grew perturbed about this child. Then I, Lamech, became afraid and went to Batanosh, my wife, saying, Declare to me by the Most High, by the Lord of Greatness, by the Eternal King, whether the child comes from the heavenly beings. You can see why they called it the Book of Lamech. He's the main character, and it's first person from his perspective. Lamech implores his wife to tell him the truth. She reminds him of the lovemaking that they shared in the passion of the night in which Noah was conceived. Then she gained control of her emotions and spoke with me. She said to me, O oh, my master and brother, recall for yourself my pregnancy. I swear to you by the great holy one, by the ruler of heaven, that this seed is yours, that this pregnancy is from you, that from you is the planting of this fruit, and that it is not from any alien or from any of the watchers or from any heavenly being. Alien is obviously not a reference to creatures from outer space, but foreigners from a different land. Anyway, back to the text. Hang on, aren't heavenly beings technically extraterrestrials? Hey, I'm reading here. Don't get me off topic. All right, back to the text. Why has the appearance of your face changed like this upon you, and why is it disfigured and your spirit dejected like this? For I tell you this truthfully. Then I, Lamech, hurried to Methuselah, my father, and communicated all this to him so that he might consult Enoch, his father, and come to know everything with certainty from him, since he is loved and favoured by God. And with the holy ones has his lot been apportioned, and hence they, that is God and the angels, reveal everything to him. When Methuselah heard these things, he hurried to Enoch, his father, to learn from him the truth of the whole matter, and sought his approval. And he had gone to Parvaim. I love Parvaim. Oh, Parvaim is what they call heaven. I knew that. Who said I didn't? It is quite heavenly. There he found Enoch, his father. And he said to Enoch, his father, O oh, my father and master, I have come to you, and I say to you to not be angry with me, because I have come here to you. Uh, the next part of this is quite badly damaged, but it seems to be some part of the story of the sin of the watchers being recounted by Enoch. Then Enoch tells Methuselah to tell Lamech to be assured that Noah really is his son and he doesn't come from the watchers or the Nephilim. It's pretty hard to piece together what happens in this part of the text because of the damage it's sustained, but it seems that there is something of a prediction of the proliferation of violence that will characterize the days of Noah. So that's where the text breaks off, and then it moves on to the next part of the book, which is another development of the same story, this time told from the point of view of Noah. And Noah begins by talking about himself while he was in the womb of his mother. Again, the text is very fragmentary, and some parts are difficult to make sense of. There's actually a subtitle in the text itself, which says, Copy of the Book of the Words of Noah, from column 6. And in my mother's womb, I swelled for the sake of righteousness. When I emerged from the womb of my mother, I was planted for righteousness. And during all my days, I conducted myself righteously and walked in the paths of eternal truth. And the holy ones were with me. And it breaks up and then it comes back. Righteousness and to protect me from paths of deception, which lead to darkness and another gap. And I bound my loins with the vision of righteousness and wisdom. There's another gap there. You know, all the paths of violence. Then I, Noah, became an adult. I held firmly to righteousness and I took hold. There's a gap there. And Amzara, his daughter, I took as my wife. I impregnated her and she bore to me three sons and daughters. 
not sure how many daughters. Then I procured wives for my sons from among the daughters of my brother, and I gave my daughters to the sons of my brother in accordance with the eternal law and ordinance of the Most High to humanity. And during my days when the amount which I had calculated was completed for me, uh, there's a little break and it says 10 jubilees, then my sons finished acquiring wives for themselves in marriage. There's another break and then it says, Heaven I beheld in a vision and I was shown and taught about the deed of the heavenly beings and what? Another break. And again, heaven and I kept this secret to myself and did not reveal it to any person. Now, there's another gap in the text there, and then it says, To me, and a great watcher to me as a messenger with a message of the Holy One. Another gap. He spoke with me in a vision and stood before me. And it breaks again. Then it says, A message of the great Holy One. He made me hear a voice saying to you, they say, O Noah. The next part's really badly damaged, and we don't get the record of what was said to Noah. There's something about the blood that was shed by the Nephilim. It also mentions the holy ones who were with mortal women. Concerning Noah, it says, But I, Noah, found favor, distinction, and righteousness. That's the end of our reading of the text. It's a pity it's been so badly damaged over time, but until we find another copy of it, if that ever happens, that may be the best we'll ever get. The text goes on to give another story, which is narrated from the viewpoint of Abraham, and it goes into great detail about his story, but that's a bit off topic for us here in Genesis 5. Okay, well, that was pretty interesting, but I thought we were going to be reading some Genesis 5. Why are we devoting so much time to these extra-biblical traditions? Hmm... Well, for the same reason that we went through that exploration of Enoch, we want to get a good understanding of how people were thinking about Noah in the Second Temple period. They clearly thought he was a pretty special guy. Yeah, that's right. And they weren't alone. Noah gets some pretty high praise in the Bible as well. They stopped short of supernatural manifestations of glory, but he's clearly one of the good guys. So let's have a look at some Bible now. Okay, but before we do that, I just have a question. Did they actually think... Noah was not human or something. They keep talking about him like he's an angel. We'll get into that in a minute. I, I have this passage from Isaiah 54, which I want to read to you. And I really just picked this up because it mentions Noah. But the reason I'm reading it is not because of what it says about Noah, but how that relates to what we were talking about last week when we talked about Lamech and how we talked about the way that God uses the force of chaos as part of the way that he brings about creation. Listen to this passage where God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and talks about the devastation coming upon the northern kingdom of Israel and the way he talks about it in creation terms. From Isaiah 54, 9. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established, Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. I just want to say, did you hear that phrase, the days of Noah, right there? 
I did, but I'm not sure I noticed that there before. I might suggest that if you want to understand the days of Noah that Jesus talks about, you might need to pay attention to this. But I've got another passage from Ezekiel chapter 14. This one talks about the righteousness of Noah, particularly with regard to the fact that Noah was not an Israelite. And yet he found salvation through righteousness. So this is from Ezekiel 14:12. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its people and their animals. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. Or if I send wild beasts through that country and they leave it childless and it becomes desolate so that no one can pass through it because of the beasts. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword against that country and say, let the sword pass throughout the land and I kill its people and their animals. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved. Or if I send a plague into that land and pour out my wrath on it through bloodshed, killing its people and their animals, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save neither son nor daughter. They would save only themselves by their righteousness. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beasts and plague, to kill its men and their animals? Yet there will be some survivors, sons and daughters, who will be brought out of it. They will come to you, and when you see their conduct and their actions, you will be consoled regarding the disaster I brought on Jerusalem, every disaster I brought on it. You will be consoled when you see their conduct and their actions, for you will know that I have done nothing in it without cause, declares the Sovereign Lord. My Bible says Daniel, not Daniel. Yeah, that's pretty common. The original Hebrew text has Daniel. The thing is, we didn't know anything about that guy until relatively recently, so it was assumed to be a spelling mistake twice. So there we get the idea of some individuals who were outstanding in their particular religious devotion, which is curious because Daniel isn't even an Israelite. He's a Canaanite. He has nothing to do with anything in the Bible, but he was famous. So the point being made is that none of these guys were Israelites, and yet they were all exceptional. Moving into the New Testament, we have this commendation by the author of Hebrews in that famous passage in chapter 11, which talks about the great heroes of faith in the Bible. Okay, Hebrews 11:7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And finally, when we read 2 Peter chapter 2, we find that Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. From verse 4, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. 
All right, so I gave you the King Jimmy there because I know you love it. Actually, I have reasons. You'll notice that even though Peter is highly influenced by First Enoch, he doesn't go into any of this glorious birth narrative that we find in the apocryphal writings. Still, I think it's fair to say that Noah was highly thought of, even if he wasn't actually an Israelite. It's interesting to me that of all the biblical sources outside of Genesis, there's no pre-exilic source that has anything to say, either positive or negative, about the character of Noah. He gets mentioned in genealogies without comment, and his name comes up in that passage in Isaiah, but once again without any comment about the man himself. Maybe it wasn't until the people of God were removed from their own land that they began to see others who were not of Israelite heritage as potential examples of virtue. Actually, when you think about it, nobody talks about the things that Noah did either. So we've got this guy who apparently is pretty good, but it's not about either his character or his deeds. Is this where those authors in the Second Temple period start getting these ideas that Noah might be some kind of super special, extraordinary person? Yeah, I think so. But when they talk about his righteousness, the way they do it is by talking about him in the same way that they imagine mankind was always meant to be from the beginning. They talk about Noah like he has this kind of glory. You find in some Gnostic writings that this this idea of Adam and Eve being created as luminous beings. But when you realize that nothing in any biblical canon supports that idea, you have to simply bring it back to a certain way of talking about righteousness and bearing God's image. And it's with that in mind that we can start to understand why Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness. And yet until Peter had said that, absolutely nobody had ever made reference to Noah preaching anything. That doesn't come from the Old Testament. We don't even have any literature from the Second Temple period to that effect either. So how can Peter call Noah a preacher of righteousness if he doesn't actually preach anything? Is that something Peter just made up? Now, for anyone who's interested in reading a bit more about this, I'd recommend a journal article that you can find online. It doesn't make the connection of imaging that I've been talking about here, but you can kind of see him skirting around it. It's called Noah, the Preacher of God's Righteousness, the Argument from Scripture in 2 Peter 2, 5 and 9. It's written by Scott Haifman and was published in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly, Volume 76, Number 2, from April 2014, in pages 306 to 320. We're going to talk about this quite a lot next season, but I feel like we have to talk about it now so we can do justice to Noah at this time where he gets his place in the spotlight. And also because it probably won't be the major focus of what we do next season, what we see in Noah is a person who, by his very nature, represents God to the world around him in such a way that his life becomes a message of God's faithfulness to all who encounter him. That's why in the apocryphal writings he's described as having this glory and radiance and everything. It's because he represents God. So it's not just about the fact that Noah did what he was told and he built the ark like he was supposed to? What we see in Noah is a person who, in his own righteousness, puts on display the righteousness of God so that his own life manifests the faithfulness of God, which guarantees the deliverance of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked. Basically, the point Peter's getting at is that Noah was a diligent representative of God. And when we start putting it in those terms, that should be ringing some bells for people who've been following this podcast, because we've been talking since season one about how important it is in the biblical narrative, and in particular in the primeval history, that people represent God well. And that's going to become even more important as we get into the story of the Nephilim next season. You might have wondered why I chose to read that passage from Second Peter from the King James Version. It's not just because I love a bit of King Jimmy. It's partly because it uses a manuscript tradition that preserves an important theological message in calling Noah the eighth person. Most other translations place emphasis on the seven others who were saved, but they neglect to speak of Noah as the eighth. I haven't yet seen a translation that captures both of those aspects. 
And since we're all about numbers this season, we might as well have a look at that now. We've talked about the number seven being a divine number. And since we're talking about a righteous remnant preserved by God, it makes sense to see the seven people that Noah rescued from the flood as being seven others who represent God by virtue of their own nature and righteousness. But why make Noah the eighth? It's not always immediately apparent why things are the way they are, especially when you come across the very first instance of it. No significance is given to the number eight until we get to the flood story, and we find that eight people in all are preserved through the flood. And that's the key there is that they make it through the flood. They make that transition from the old world to the new world. They cross over from the evil age and into the age to come. They're preserved through and from God's judgment on the ungodly, and they continue to live in the age beyond that judgment. And those seven were enabled by the faithfulness of Noah, the eighth. The number eight, therefore, becomes symbolic of crossing over into a new creation. Israelites were circumcised on the eighth day, when Jesus rose on the first day of the week, he effectively appeared on the eighth day because it's the one after the seventh day. And speaking of Jesus, it's interesting that his names and titles, as they appear in the Bible, when they're converted numerically, add up to multiples of eight. Say what? I'll give you some examples. Christ in Greek is expressed as 1,480 or eight times 185. Lord is expressed as 800 or eight times 100. Our Lord is expressed as 1,768 or 8 times 221. Saviour is expressed as 1,408 or 8 squared times 32. Emmanuel is 25,600 or 8 to the power of 3 times 50. Messiah is 656 or 8 times 82. Son is is 880 or 8 times 110. And finally, the number of the name of Jesus when written in Greek is 888. Let's break that down so I can show you. So remembering it's Greek, it's Jesus. The Yota is worth 10. The Eta is worth 8. The Sigma is 200. Omicron is 70. The Gamma is 40. And the Sigma another 200, and the total is 888. And as you're probably aware, the name Joshua is actually spelt identically, and in both Joshua and Jesus, we see a person who brought the people of God out of a place characterized by death and into a place characterized by new life. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. While we're doing weird stuff with numbers, you might be thinking, well, what about Noah? We're here to talk about Noah. What's the number of his name? Obviously, in the Hebrew Bible, we'd be doing Gematria. He's actually the eighth person as stated by Peter, so that is significant in itself. But it's not a multiple of eight on its own. Having said that, when you add it together with the numbers of the names of his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, an interesting thing happens because the total is 936, or eight times nine times 13. Now, we've just been talking about the number eight as the number of crossing over into a new world, and we spoke earlier about the number nine and its significance because of its proximity to the end, and thus its reference to the coming judgment. So what about the number 13? It turns out that more often than not, the bad guys in the Bible have a gematria that works out to a multiple of 13. The line of Cain, if you add the entire genealogy, adds up to 2,223, or 13 times 9 times 19. The names of the Canaanites in Genesis 10 verses 15 to 18 tally up to 3,211 or 13 squared times 19. Well, it turns out that if you remove Ham from that calculation that I mentioned before, 
the three remaining names of Noah, Shem, and Japheth equal 888. And with Ham included, you get this multiple of 8 and 9 and 13. So it's the inclusion of Ham that changes the equation to one that incorporates the coming judgment of the unrighteous. Now, that's interesting. That is interesting, I agree. But where, where do you find this stuff? Ethelbert W. Bullinger wrote a book entitled Number in Scripture. What a great name. Hey, what an awesome name. Why aren't people named like that these days? Now, anyway, I got access to the 1967 publication of his book, although Bullinger himself died in 1913. He did some really great work. Fortunately for me, my father-in-law is the chairman of the Evangelical Bible College of Western Australia, otherwise known as EBCWA, which is a bit of an underground institution educating believers all over the world. Um, you can look them up online, actually, and they do their education for free. He's got a pretty good library, especially if I want something that's out of print. That is very handy. Um, and speaking of things that are out of print, do you realize that we haven't even done our reading for today yet? Oh, yeah, I, I guess we got carried away. Let's do that. Uh, Genesis 5.32. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. There you go. I did it. All right, so we talked earlier about the way that Lemex spoke about Noah, talking about the comfort that he would bring. Then I mentioned that Noah's name didn't actually mean comfort. It, it sounds like it. It's a neat play on words. The actual meaning of Noah is rest, and that doesn't just mean catching up on sleep. We've talked about rest before and how in the ancient world the concept of rest was linked to the idea of a king or god having set everything in order in their territory so that they were free to rule and reign over an ordered and peaceful domain. Combining that with what we've said previously about Noah, we can see that this rest is going to come after he endures the terrible ordeal that is to come. So Lemech kind of spoiled it for us in his speech because we haven't got to that part of the story yet, but we've heard this a million times, and we were warned already through the messaging that the author has laid down through this genealogy. The Blood is coming. And the rest will follow. Uh, I see what you did there. Anyway, I suppose we better talk about Noah's three sons. We'll do this just briefly because they're going to get their own 15 minutes of fame later on after the flood story. The three sons are always read in order of their importance from the point of view of the storyteller. It's not their birth order. Everyone says that uh, Shem's the, the firstborn and Japheth was the, uh, the third son, but that's actually not correct uh, on both counts. Uh, so we get Shem, Ham, and Japheth in that order because Shem is the most important one, being the forefather of the Semites, the Hebrews, and later on, the Israelites. Ham comes next because his role in the story is the bad guy, as we're going to find out in Genesis 9, and as we hinted at a moment ago when we were looking at the numerology behind Noah's family. And then we have Japheth, who kind of represents everybody else, etc., etc. Uh, Japheth, or shall I say, Yefet, has an interesting name because it's connected to the Hebrew root, which means to spread wide or to open. And that is connected to the idea of opening the womb because he is the firstborn. Later on, we're going to hear Noah make a play on this name when he gives Japheth his blessing. Ham, or Ham as it's pronounced, is uh, unusual because the name means something like to be hot, which is usually found in an expression of anger or indignation. And we'll be talking about that later on, uh, whether this is an expression of his own temperament or perhaps the feeling that he evokes in others. As I mentioned before, Shem might come first in the narrative for the purposes of the story, but he's actually the middle child. This one's pretty straightforward, and we talked about it before. His name means name. Generally, in the context of the ancient world, that would be only half of a name because it would generally be followed by a divine name, as in name of God. As an example, you'd find names like Shem Hadu, name of Hadu or Hadad. 
But here, the name of God is not spoken. We're supposed to understand that it's implied, and that's only going to make sense when we understand that the audience is Semitic and it's Hebrew and it's Israelite. There's an inherent cultural assumption at play. The interesting thing about these names is where we tend to find them. I've already mentioned that Shem is Semitic. That should be no surprise. Ham is actually an Egyptian name, so maybe that is a surprise. And then you have Japheth, whose name is Greek. Uh, Iapetus is known from Greek, where it can be found as the name of one of the Titans, the father of Prometheus. It probably means something like shining or beautiful, which you can also find in related Hebrew words like Yephah, as seen in the description of the beauty of Satan in Ezekiel 28. That's some pretty heavy-going stuff. Wait a minute, you're saying that Noah's son, Yephet, is actually described by his name as shining and beautiful, and yet the traditions in the Second Temple period had Noah himself born like that and not his son? Yeah, that's right. This is an awesome way of subverting the Greek cultural origins narrative during the Second Temple period by taking the glorious appearance of Yephet, and instead of relating it to the Greek story of Prometheus and the origin of human civilization, they apply it to Noah in order to describe his righteousness and the way that he faithfully represented God through his obedience. So stuff like First Enoch actually served to correct dominant Greek cultural paradigm. Exactly, and they did it by drawing on the text of Genesis. But the Bible doesn't have this story about Noah being born all radiant and holy and all that. No, that's right. And that's one reason why we can say that this counter-Greek narrative was established in the Second Temple period and not earlier. But what about Yephet being a radiant stuff that is in the biblical text, if we understand his name that way, that is? Well, I can see what you mean, but the fact is that reading of the name derives from a different root to the one preserved in the name of Yephet. There are some similarities, I can't deny that, but it's not a legitimate derivative of the text. It's only come about because the Greek word in use derives from a Semitic root, but it's not the same one being used here in the Bible. In fact, you don't even get it in the Greek translation of the Bible. And since the author basically does nothing with that name in order to make any kind of point along those lines, it seems pretty clear that it isn't what he's aiming at. So we're not saying that the biblical Yefet really had anything to do with that Greek guy, Yefetus? Yeah, that's right. Nobody was making that connection until the 17th century AD, and that really just comes from noticing some similarity in the spelling. There's nothing else to it. Yeah, I was thinking we were going to get all supernatural here at the end of Genesis 5. I was looking forward to some giants. Don't worry, Chris, it's coming. Next week we're going to wrap up this season, then we're going to take a break for a month when we come back. We'll begin our study of Genesis chapter 6. That's going to be awesome. I can't wait. But now, right now, this very moment, it's time for some Q and also some A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can put you get answers to your giant questions. So Jim asked via the website, giantanswers.com, what was the height of the tallest giant in the Bible or that has been found through archaeology? There you go. You wanted giants? You got giants. Okay, well, that's a nice quick one to address. Uh, I really can't speak on archaeology because, number one, it isn't my field of study. Number two... I don't know whether the finds that I've heard reported are actually genuine or fraudulent. So rather than tell you something and then find out it was faked or whatever, I'm just going to stay out of that area. It's not my expertise. But I can talk about the Bible. Yeah, most people would say the biggest guy in the Bible would be Goliath, the Philistine giant from Gath, who was defeated by David. According to the Masoretic text, he was the equivalent of nine feet nine tall. Uh, I've talked about this a few times now, so I won't spend a lot of 
time on this. That height certainly sounds implausible, but I think it's quite improbable. Not outside the realm of possibility, but highly unlikely. When you read the Greek translation, his height is recorded as the equivalent of six foot six tall. That sounds a lot more likely, and it still makes him more than a foot taller than an average Israelite. But then some people say, what about King Og of Bashan? Wasn't he like 13 feet tall or something? But actually, the only measurements we get are measurements of his bed, not his own height. The measurements of the bed are recorded because they're the same dimensions as the cultic ritual bed found at Isagila, a Babylonian ziggurat. So the point of mentioning the size of the bed is to give an idea of its intended purpose and not the size of the person sleeping on it. The Bible does call Og a giant, but it never tells us his height. Actually, the tallest giant recorded in Scripture doesn't even get his name mentioned in the text. All we know is that he was an Egyptian, he was killed by one of David's mighty men, and his height was recorded at five cubits. Given that this was an Egyptian, we might be talking about Egyptian cubits. And if that's the case, then this guy was well over eight and a half feet tall. Here's the text. This is 1 Chronicles 11, verses 22 and 23. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down an Egyptian who was five cubits tall. Although the Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's rod in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. All right, so there you go. Uh, don't mess with a guy who can kill lions even when it's cold. Uh, I often say that the height of the giants that the Bible talks about, I mean, hey, killing killing lions when it's warm, right? That, that's not a big deal, is it? Uh, I often say that the height of the giants that the Bible talks about wasn't really that remarkable. Certainly not fairy tale kind of stuff, but you'd have to admit, if you were confronted by a person almost nine feet tall, you'd definitely call them a giant. So, yeah, thanks for the question, Jim. What else you got for us, Chris? Noah also contacted us through the website, and he has another lot of questions for us. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I think I'll take these one at a time. All right. Well, these are questions concerning the uh, legion of demons that Jesus cast out of the possessed man in the land of the Gadarenes. That's Luke chapter 8 for those playing at home. The demons asked Jesus not to send them to the abyss, but instead to send them into the herd of swine. Why then did the herd run off the cliff into the sea, which is symbolic of the abyss? Yeah, okay, well, this one seems pretty simple. Uh, Jesus doesn't have to do what they want him to do, and the pigs don't either. It's interesting that it's only Luke's version of these events that have the mention of the abyss. Matthew and Mark don't mention it. Instead, they talk about the demons begging Jesus not to send them out of the area. Anyway, the point is that Jesus has the superiority here and the demons do not. What a lot of people don't realize is when they read this passage is that the demons are actually trying to perform an exorcism on Jesus. What? Yeah, you see, the thing about exorcism is that it works by means of calling on a higher power in order to pull rank in terms of legal authority. So the demons are there invoking the name of God to try and command Jesus to obey their will. And Jesus is like, I am God. You can't use my name against me. You're going to do what I want you to do. And even though he gives them permission to enter the herd of pigs, the pigs are going to obey Jesus, aren't they? Bye-bye, demons. That's so cool. All right, here's Noah's next question. What is the meaning of Matthew 12, 43 to 44? which says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. If they travel through waterless places, then why jump into a sea of water? 
Okay, so in this context, we're supposed to understand that the idea of a dry place is that it's habitable. Like, you don't build your house on marshland, you build it somewhere dry. The demon's looking for somewhere that it can inhabit. It's not going to go to a watery place because water's symbolic of chaos. The demon's looking to create disorder where there is none rather than just get involved in an already chaotic situation where it would make no difference. That's why the demon's looking for some place that's swept clean and put in order. He's looking for a person he can mess up. But the thing about the abyss is that while it is representative of chaos, it's also the prison of the spirits that were responsible for the creation of the demons in the first place. I don't think they'd treat the demons very nicely. So that's why the demons don't want to go there. So you might have noticed that in none of these contexts are we actually talking about literal water. And in fact, the demons that Jesus cast out of the man didn't mention water either. They were talking about the abyss, not the sea. So this isn't a fear of getting wet. Although, if I were a demon with a distinct memory of being a drowning giant in a great flood, then I perhaps would be afraid of water. But that's the mastery of the biblical authors. They can use that kind of imagery to make connections back to those ancient stories. Anyway, I think that should answer that question. You got any more, Chris? Yes, this is the last one from Noah. Is there any connection between the herd of swine jumping from a cliff to their death and the custom of Israel to push the Azizel's scapegoat off of a cliff to its death after transferring the sins of the people to it as described in Yoma six six. Hmm. Okay, that's a pretty cool question. I hadn't really thought about that before, but I can't see any reason why it couldn't be in the mind of the author or of the audience hearing that story. I think it makes a pretty cool parallel. And on some level, there's a connection between demonization and sin, so that could be legitimate. You know, the idea of the uh, the goat for Azazel was to put all the sins of the people on it and then send it away. Yeah, because you actually don't have the the idea of pushing the scapegoat off a cliff in the Bible. That's mm. that's a record of the tradition. Because right. what happened, right? According to Leviticus, where they do this, so it's chapter 16, the, the priest uh, like lays, hands. lays hands on the on the goat, sort of transfers all the sins of the people under the goat. Then somebody takes the goat away, like out into the wilderness, uh, let him go. But they had a bit of a problem because sometimes the goat remembers his way back. No, <laughs> <laughs> never thought about that. That's quite funny. Yeah, <laughs> this goat comes wandering in and all the people are like, ah, the wrath of God is coming back because, you know, all our sins are, are coming back and, and you know, <laughs> so they're terrified. Like, Get rid of that goat. So, <laughs> so they started doing a thing apparently where they would make sure that the goat couldn't come back and they achieved that by finding a, um, a a pretty high cliff and uh, giving the goat a bit of a nudge uh, <laughs> off the edge, uh, you know, wily coyote style, uh, so that it wasn't going to come wandering back. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wow. Okay. So there you go. Interesting. <laughs> Poor goat. I don't think that it's intentional in the text because I don't see the author using the kind of language that's designed to evoke that connection. As an example, I think if that connection was intentional, then the story would be about goats rather than pigs. But that doesn't mean it isn't there on some level. I like that idea, Noah. Keep the questions coming. Okay, well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much again to uh, Jim and Noah for sending in those awesome questions. Don't forget to stay tuned for next week's season wrap and make sure you're subscribed too because when we come back with a fresh new season for you we're getting in to genesis 6 stick around we'll see you then it's time to wrap up today's episode but if you want more don't forget to get yourself a copy of answers to giant 
questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Great Forsaken, greatforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Sam, Ham and Japheth. Uh, let me try that again. Yawning. <laughs> Talking through the yawn words. Sorry, swallowing something comfort. And since the author basically does nothing with that name in order to make any kind of point along those lines, those lines, I said limes. Like there was oranges and apples and limes. Uh, Benaiah, son of Joadiah, uh, son of Jehoiada. Jehoiada? Let's try that again. Not as comfortable as I would have liked. Oh, well, it's not the camera that bothers me. It's uh, when people ask you questions about stuff that, you haven't really had to think about for like three years. And you're like, hmm, uh, where did I file that in my brain? Uh, <laughs> and then it's live, like it got streamed. Oh, really? Like, so you're on the spot. Like you can't be like, oh, give me a second. Just edit this empty space out while I go and look it up. Mm. Uh, excuse me while I read my own book. Um, yeah. <laughs> Bit awkward. <laughs> After all the safety training and politically – Correct. Rubbish they put you through. Uh, mm. you know, uh, take us out on the town and share us a beer and a hamburger. So I was like, yeah, all right. Well, I'll, uh, I'll do that. Sure. Yeah. It's good. We don't get that kind of stuff in the uh, government. No. We don't get fun. Oh, I miss no those fun. days. No, if, if there was any fun, it'd be banned. You'd have to declare it. I know. You'd have to say, I sort of enjoyed sending a semi-sarcastic email to somebody yes just kind of made me smirk a little where what's the form that i need to fill out to declare my shade and fruit smf yep the order smirk declaration form that's the one you want uh, that's the one so i haven't even read uh but that's not unusual yeah well i was updating it five minutes ago so even if you had read I saw it, that you'd be wrong um but <laughs> it's all good Okay, having some uh, Simon Comfort. Oh, lovely. With a bit of, bit of Sprite. Because I had oh, very some nice. of both of those things, I thought. Yes, wow. this is good. Mm, I've, I've just had a uh, a nice uh, Matzo's ginger beer. Oh, yes. Do enjoy those. Nice. All right. Are you ready? I am ready. Challenger, ready. Gladiator. Ready. Beaver. Unprepared. One. (laughs) Unless you're sitting in a chair. Like an adult. I'm in a couch.
this is progress. You should start like just walking around with a with a D twenty in your pocket for making decisions and just just roll it whenever you have to choose something, you know, odds versus evens. Just to um just to, just to keep it real, like all the time. You know, oh, I've got to do the dishes again. Okay, roll for initiative. <laughs> oh, you know the terminology. I'm impressed. <laughs> well, I mean, the problem is I live alone, so uh, either way, I'm a loser. <laughs>